listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality. We're thrilled to have you all here with us. And welcome one, welcome all. If this is your first time watching the show, where have you been? But also a quick intro about who we are and what we do. Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are in essence changing their own reality. So we're streaming live from WQHS Radio and the show and through the show you'll be able to hang out with amazing people from all across the world because we'll be interviewing um, all kinds of people from social change makers, industry leaders, top executives, entrepreneurs, business owners to even artists, musicians and inspired individuals globally and many of them like our speaker today who has actually spent some time here on the Penn campus too and we get to hear the inspiring stories on how they are not only changing the world around them but also creating waves in the lives of others and I personally am someone who's super passionate about this show and the stories that we learn from it because through these stories I believe we can take away little bits of wisdom that we can use to change our own reality and I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and are making these waves. And I'm very passionate about hearing how they do that so that we can do the same in our own capacities. So personally, to show you how important I feel the, like the world of stories or the impact of stories can be, I actually founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that collaborates with not only the Malaysian Ministry of Education, but today 28 over countries to help provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, projects that help them discover their passion, learn about themselves, and also go out there and figure out the world around them through hands-on experiences, actually working on stuff that they are passionate about so that they can come back and begin to even start their own careers while they're still in school. Careers that not only impact themselves, that are not only things that they love, but create meaningful impact for those around them as well, for the communities that they're in. And to date, we've been fortunate to work with over 35,000 students in 970 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects, social enterprises, and careers run by students aged 8 to 25 years old. So the basis of all of that is stories. We run it because of kind people who share their experiences, who come in and share the things that they're going through, the lessons that they've learned, so that Gen Zs, college students, everyone, um, or like all of us in a way, can build on their experiences and take it to the next level. So if you have any questions about the show, if there's anything that you guys want to learn about that you guys want to discuss, do drop it in the show chat below, and we'll take a look at it and see what we can do. So. Speaking of inspiring people, today's guest is someone absolutely phenomenal. He's an experienced product management and marketing director accustomed to fast-moving environments and agile teams. So he does the whole range of work in a sense from design, he's been from designing products, uh, coding prototypes, and today he actually leads global, a global team as he's actually the VP of Acquire Solutions at Visa. He was a bachelor's degree student here at the University of Penn in political science and also has a PhD in management science and uh, management science at Stanford University. So without further ado, let's welcome Thomas Hermo, our amazing guest for today's session, welcoming him to our virtual stage. Hello. Hello. Hi, Thomas. How are you today? Has it been an all right day so far? <laughs> 
It has been. It has been. It's um, it's getting a little colder because I live in the mountains, but still, still nice fall weather. How about how about you guys out there? I think everyone's gearing up for the holidays right now, wherever yeah. they are. So very, very excited to have you. This is actually going to be one of our last few shows since we're already in November. So thank you so much for making the time. And um, I really hope you're as excited as we are. So from your like intro, you're someone who, again, as I said, manages a global team, works at one of the biggest companies out there. And I've got to ask, have you always like known what you wanted to do? Or are you like the rest of us confused college students who are looking for a bit of inspiration, especially as the year dwindles down and we start to reflect on the stuff that we've done? So where, where did you fit into like the spectrum when you were in college or even before that? <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, no, I had no idea and um, uh, made, you know, a lot of random decisions to get here. Um, when I was a, when I was a teenager, I really wanted to be a writer. And uh, my parents were like, no, that's not a good job. <laughs> um, Got to pick something else. And uh, probably a good advice. I, I'm not that great of a writer. But um, I was like, I liked reading. So maybe I could just write. Um, in college, you know, when I got to college, um, it was a while ago now, um, probably uh, probably before some of the you folks were, were born, which is sort of intimidating uh, to think about. Um, but, you know, the, the dot com uh, boom was coming to an end. And so it was this weird time where, like, obviously, computer science and tech was all was really big. But then the crash happened shortly after. And it was kind of this intermediate time. So, no, like I. I got political science, right? That's a really big difference from working in product and solutions at Visa. Um, but no, I, I sort of went from one interesting thing to the next, uh, to the next until I ended up here. So if you're if you're the same way, um, you shouldn't feel bad. I feel like it, there's still times where I I you know get done with work and I'm like, is this is this a thing? You know, am I doing something real? Do I do I like this? So I think it happens to all of us at any age. Uh, that insecurity of hmm. Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? All right. So we're not doomed, just to clarify. No, no. Oh, okay, we're right. all together. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so like when you were like at Penn, actually, like how do you go about picking like the thing that you were passionate about at that point of time? I mean, it may not have been the final thing, obviously, right. not now in hindsight, but like how do you even pick the first thing to start in? Was it just like finding whatever seemed the most relevant at that point of time? Or did you just throw a dice or flip a coin and be like, all right, this one looks good? <laughs> um, you know, somewhere in between. Um, when uh, when I came, there were these freshman seminars that were required, and they might still be. Um, haven't haven't checked, obviously. And there was one by a political science professor that I don't think I ever met again uh, after that seminar. Um, and he it was on constitution making or writing, and it was about the, you know, it was American political history. And uh, he was he was an interesting guy. He's as many professors are. He would only let you write on um, half of a sheet of paper, and he made you use the Garamond font only. There's lots of very peculiar rules, and I don't think I even got a great grade in the class. But I think it was the first time in my life I'd been, you know, forced into a room with a bunch of other strange strangers, but you know, young people, and you debate you know, abstract concepts and thought it was great. And that's where I went for uh, to political science from there. And, you know, started out like a lot of, I think a lot of folks with the poli sci econ 
Um, but uh, it turned out I could graduate faster without the econ double major. So <laughs> I stuck with political science. But yeah, it was it was definitely um, something the the freshman seminar. Um, taught, I almost did computer science, like I said earlier, uh, but my family wasn't uh, wasn't an engineering family. And when I talked to them about it, it's kind of funny. In retrospect, they were like, that doesn't sound like uh, like a great career. <laughs> and uh, we obviously didn't know what we were talking about. Uh, but the, I did work as a programmer, which is so kind of funny. But um, yeah, so it was it was like you hear about, like you hear about in the silly brochures. We were like, oh, your horizons will be expanded and you'll meet new people and learn new things. And it really was the case in that seminar. It was really interesting and, and challenging. It was hard, uh, but I liked it. Okay, that's very, very fascinating. I've got to ask, where did you learn like the whole programming and like like that aspect <laughs> of things? Like because like here you are like at something that's like literally I could not find something more different from like computer science and like like you just had to be like, hmm, what's the furthest thing from programming I could find? <laughs> yeah, like I could have maybe been like a, a poet or something, right? And I've been <laughs> a little bit less. You know, back in back in the nineties when I was in high school, which again is before uh, it was a long time ago. Uh, uh, you know, web programming was was really simple, right? At the time, it, nowadays it's as complex as anything else, and you're talking about multiple systems. But you know, back then it was like you write some HTML and you load it in your web browser, and ta-da, you're a programmer. And I think I'm a little modest, but continue. All right. <laughs> no, I wish I wish I was. Um, there was a guy in my hometown who, you know, he's one of those early web web designer guys, and he wanted some part time help, and so it was like just random helping him build websites, and um, it was it was interesting. Um, I didn't learn a ton, um, but it, I learned the basics. So when I uh, when I got to when I got to Penn, that was my part time job. And the irony was I was working at the gym, um, the the Patrick Center, um, which was a lot better than before the Patrick Center. There was this there was some old gym. So the Patrick was a huge improvement. It happened while I was there. It probably seems really old now, but it was amazing. And so yeah, I used to be the joke because yeah, I work at the gym, you know doing the website in the back office okay all right still really cool and i think like like what's even cooler is after leaving penn you actually did a law degree at stanford yes. so like like that's again a different turn so like yes. right now already in the story we've got writer computer science <laughs> and then we've got like like i'm just amazed with the range so like uh, randomness yeah i told you it's just very random um you know it was um I don't know what started the spark for, for law school, but poli sci, I mean, political science is a, you know, a common degree a foundation for law school. So I'm sure there were other classmates. There's one in particular, I remember who um, was in poli sci with me and he applied to law schools as well. Uh, but it felt like a, it felt like a fun continuation of what I'd loved about political science, which was a lot of debate and um, a lot of, in a lot of abstract debate where you really have to like work hard to, convince other people of your point of view and it's it's and you have to sort of think about the real world implications and so law school <clears throat> seemed seemed really exciting and it seemed better than management consulting which in retrospect i'm not sure um but at the time a lot of, a lot of people i knew were going to management consultant firms and that seemed really intimidating to me um, law school seemed a lot less intimidating and I visited some campuses and 
maybe it was because I visited Stanford in the winter and it was like beautiful and sunny and that sort of uh, had a subliminal effect on me, but it seemed like a very cool and a very different experience, right? Going from East Coast, Philadelphia to the farm, you know, as they call it, with its palm trees and everyone's riding bikes around and everyone's, you know, pretending to be very chill and relaxed and lying about how hard they're working and studying. But yeah, I never practiced as a lawyer, uh, but did did finish law school. <laughs> Very cool. And I, I like how you define something that was like up to par with Penn. You were like, hmm, I already did the Ivy League. Like, let me go to Stanford <laughs> now. I mean, like, that's intimidating for the rest of us, but it's okay. <laughs> you you also went on to do your PhD at Stanford, right? So, yeah. again, what was kind of like the, the thought process behind that? Um, so, when I initially applied to law school, one of the thoughts was um, wanting to become a professor. And I was sort of torn about it and, um, you know, wasn't totally convinced. Uh, but one of the reasons I chose Stanford is um, they're, they're very supportive of joint degrees. And so when I went there and talked to the folks and they had a whole roster of uh, joint degree programs. And um, so that, that kind of tipped us in the favor of going to school there. And then so the first year I was there, I was already preparing to apply uh, for the Ph.D. program and had about a year overlap between the two programs um, and classwork and things like that. And so initially really wanted to be a professor. Um, and a lot of it was to bring, you know, a more rigorous analysis to legal studies. Um, a lot of legal academia is uh, very formalistic. Um, and it was really cool. I loved, I loved learning about it. I love the studies, but I don't think I was cut out for uh, the research. I don't have the attention span. Um, you know, pe professors talk about working on papers for five, 10 years before they get published. You know, teaching is awesome. Working with students is awesome. But uh, the publisher parish wasn't really my cup of tea. And so that's why actually before I finished the, the dissertation, I went to work in startups. So there was a few years, which was a terrible idea. Never, never do that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So for a few years there, I was doing the startup thing and working on the dissertation, um, which turned out OK in the end. But at the time was uh, was a bit stressful. And my advisor had grave doubts about my ability to, <laughs> to finish, which I get. All right. I'm going to meander a little bit and ask you, so how did you actually end up to do like all these many different things at once? You have to like kind of like work at a startup, like get that part of it done. And you're doing kind of like a dual degree. You had finished your dissertation towards the end of it. So like what's the the, the, the mental strategy to like be able to cope <laughs> with all of this in a sense? Like asking for all of those who are struggling with midterms right now. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I don't I don't recommend it. Um, a, a part of it was um, I had a tendency to um, follow people, follow peers I, I really respected. And so you know, a lot, I didn't know anyone going to Stanford. But when I joined the joint degree program after I'd gotten there, had a good friend who was already in the Ph.D. program. And I always found that like that really helped me. Um, you know, I like to think of myself as this like you know, brave explorer, but I actually always did a lot better when I had, you know, people I knew around me that could be a little bit like a security blanket, but also just like reassuring. It was the same friend when I, when I was finishing my dissertation and I was running some, you know, analyses on the data and 
messed something up and thought all the data was bad and was ready to throw it out. You know, it's the same friend I called and was like, I give up. It's not going to work. You know, it was the same friend that talked me off the ledge and sort of helped me get back to sanity and finish. So I think that's part of it because um, for me, having that personal connection with someone like a peer, a peer mentor kind of helped me be like, okay, why am I doing this? Um, you know, is, is, you know, kind of more mission driven um, because I don't know about, you know, folks listening in, but a lot of what I what was when I got to Penn was just like a good student. That was my identity. I was like, that's what I do. I get good grades and people tell me good job. And I feel like it wasn't until Penn with more challenging classes, people from different backgrounds where it was like, oh, my goodness, like, what do I actually want to do with these grades? And of course, you know, occasionally not getting the great grades <laughs> that I'd gotten in high school. And so the peers helped. And then I think um, I was always drawn toward the more um, active parts of it. So there's a lot of teaching and mentoring you do when you're part of a PhD program, either in a lab. I wasn't in the hard sciences, so it was more teaching and mentoring. I love that. We had a, you know, we worked with the National Science Foundation on some stuff. We worked with an entrepreneurship center at Stanford. So it was very busy. Um, we used to joke about the 40-hour work week being over by breakfast on Wednesday. And, um, and, uh, it, but it was great. I mean, you're working with people you admire, you're learning a lot. Um, you know, but then, then your twenties are over and you get into your thirties and you start, you know, your life is different. You're married, you might have a kid. And so that changes, but you know, for, for a lot of my twenties, it really was this working with people I admire, working with friends I really looked up to. And you felt like you were, having a, like a cool impact in people's lives. You know, I was working with undergrads and graduate students and sometimes professors help kind of think through their dreams. And that makes you feel like you're contributing to a community and it's not just about you excelling. And I don't know, that's kind of a long answer, but that community being part of a community, I think is what made it real for me and helped me stay committed um, to, through the end. No, no, lovely answer. And I've always been a big advocate for community. That's why I started the yeah, sentence yeah. I mentioned earlier, because it was always about having like 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 genius is something that you can do by yourself, like that you have <laughs> in me. But like, but I've never been the brightest, like by just by myself. And I feel like being part of a community and creating that community for others, like reciprocally, has Absolutely. been giving me meaning at the very least and has helped others kind of like like excel even if they may not have the individual capacity or may not have the resources or experience that they would otherwise need to do so so definitely agree with your answer how is this like it seems like a, like an excellent frame of mind and an excellent experience to be in where you actually have this community you 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 transition in a sense from a high schooler or to someone in college who again as you mentioned has this identity of someone who yeah. is figuring things out a good student and all that how does that translate when you like transition into the working world you mentioned you started off working with a bunch of startups and all of yeah. that i know that you worked with you worked with word nick which i think is more towards <laughs> the it side again so like how how did like what was your frame of mind entering the working arena in a sense that's a it's another good question um you know it's a really different going from um school uh whether it's grad school or to the working world it's kind of an interesting transition and you know, I didn't I didn't join a part of any I wasn't part of like a rotational program or an associate or apprenticeship where there's lots of rules and regulations. You have like a class you go in with and it sort of gives you this nice like landing 
um, into a place, which I highly recommend. We have them here at Visa and it is great. It's great if, you know, you're starting out and you have like this, you know, other group of people starting out with you. But um, I missed all that. Um, and so when I went to the went to the working world, part of it was great because it was, um, you know, doing a PhD program or a law degree. There's a lot of competition and um, it's often friendly, but it's there. And, you know, you're you're kind of arguing with really smart people all day long. You know, there's no right answers. Again, if you're in the hard sciences, then this might be different. But I was more in the management science, you know. And so you're just like you're sort of always ready to go prove your worth. And at work, it was more collaborative. Um, and I, I really like that. Like there was a team. It wasn't just you had to be on all the time. You had to be there for your team. But, you know, if you weren't there for a day or something, there was other people that were working and you were all working together on it, which felt really nice. Um, but, you know, it's also hard because criticism is very different. Um, you know, criticism at a school level is just very different um, than at work. And, um you know, it's I, I think I, you know, if my pride was wounded a lot at that first job, you know, when, uh, you know, thought that kind of probably went in there with a little bit of like, well, whoever the smartest person in the room is and can prove it should get to make the decisions. And uh, that's not actually the way it turns out businesses are run. And um, so I think I had my ego dinged uh, several times, but good, in a good way, like I, you know, once or twice just kind of come home and, you know, be like, uh, just steaming mad. And then you calm down and you realize like, you know what, like, I, yeah, I can learn from these people. So a lot of checking your pride at the door, which helped and a lot of listening. I feel like uh, that first job I was really lucky. It was a very small startup, less than 20 people. And I was a product manager. I didn't have much technical, technical work to do. There was a little bit. So a lot of what I got to do was listen and learn from the other people and some of them, you know, totally different than me, wouldn't do things the same way, but it was still really helpful to learn from those people. But it's, it's a transition, you know, that, I mean, I joke a little bit, but I think I kind of, I've kind of, uh, you know, adopted too much of this, like, I'm going to show up every day, prove I'm smart. And it's like in the corporate world, that's the wrong motivation. <laughs> you show up every day, help your team and, you know, sort of, a lot of times you want to be a little bit more invisible. You know, you want to be often the mentor or the the friend. And that's changed a lot, I think. So that, that was, it was a good transition, but it did challenge me in a lot of ways. Um, um, but in a good way. It did make me question, I think that was a job where I was like, maybe I should have gone the technical route. Um, you know, a lot of folks make this transition. Mine was always, a, I was always a hobbyist on the technical side, never formally trained. It's always a big choice. It's a big choice to decide I'm going to go the developer route or engineering route. You know, and a lot of folks get a few years down that road and they realize, actually, I don't want to be, you know, working on PRs and stories and having a bunch of idiots on the business side telling me what to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to go to the business side. And I'm going to tell these people what to do. Um, and that but I think I sort of confirmed for me there at that job that I preferred being on the business side and that the guys that were on the technical side already knew like way more than I did. And I was, I was uh, not behind so much as felt a better affinity for the business side. So that first job, the transition was rough, but I do think it helped. And if you're going into technology, it's a choice everyone kind of has to make of, am I going to be on the technical side or the business side? And not that you can't switch, but it's a big choice to make. No, no, I think it's an absolutely brilliant sharing. I have 
been fortunate to be able to work and study at the same time and i often feel like my 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 student brain doesn't fit in into the working <laughs> world no and it's it's real and yeah. i have to like actively tell myself you're not getting graded on this or like nobody's going to like like nobody's like like in school it's like you score 1 to 100 you know <laughs> like if you miss something out there like yeah. you just go about it you figure it out but in the like in the real world there's like no nobody's like has, has a mark scheme to like what you're yeah. supposed to do or what you're supposed to say so that's been my challenge switching and i heard a lot of from, from like pen students who leave into the working world and we often think that oh we're from pen we we've, we've got it covered and then we get hit like as we transition out and we get we start to realize that wow this this whole thing is different than what i imagined yeah. so thank you for sharing i think that's very very relevant totally. and like I I really love that part about kind of like deciding early on like figuring out early on those like core concepts that you mentioned it's about collaboration not competition mm-hmm. it's about figuring out whether you're more on the technical side or if you're more on kind of like the management side but what do you think enabled you to figure out all of these things so early on in that first job itself like from what i've heard sometimes it takes a bit of a while for us yeah. to kind of like wrap our heads around it so what what like was there like a particular incident or something that happened yeah. or was it something that gradually we just like get hit a couple of times and realize in a sense it's probably a combination of both and you know i was when i hit that startup i was in my late 20s already so i was actually behind the, behind some people cuz i'd been studying for so long um so i had some catching up to do um but a lot of times if you go to grad school um you think of yourself as like really well equipped and you know i'm an expert but uh for folks who went right into the workforce sometimes they're ahead of you because they've learned you know all these other lessons of teamwork and building up a little bit of a thick skin to deal with feedback and things like that um in terms of who helped so um you know a lot of it i i found that in internships and various other vol- not volunteer but other other stuff at school um i always asked people about what they did and what they learned and you know people especially in a lot of these folks you know are toward the end of their careers because they're helping or volunteering at a university or they might some of these you know Stanford startups are really big and so a lot of these folks are venture capitalists who have you know done quite a bit with their careers and um I felt like I hadn't done a lot of interesting things compared to these folks and so I was always, always asking them about what they were doing and I feel like I was able to like vicariously learn a little bit through them and they had they would all share almost they would all share these stories about like screw ups earlier in their career you know like one guy who was a a mentor of mine and for a lot of people i mean he was a he was an old startup guy got out of the game um before the collapse so he he really lucked out but he had this great story about when he was marketing director of maybe a graphics card company can't remember the company so he and his team spent hundreds of hours building the sales manual right big thick volume how do you sell our graphics cards printed out thousands of copies had them delivered over to the sales team in a different building and he he got so excited he and his team were like let's go over and just see how much um the sales team loves this this guy <laughs> and so he goes and drives over there and as they go over there they're like do you smell smoke and they drive over to the other building everybody is out in the parking lot and there's an, a huge bonfire in the middle where they are burning every copy of the go to market you know product marketing manual that that he made 
and which is an awesome story. And we don't print things out enough anymore to ever have that happen again. But, you know, and I had my own version of those, right, where you you sort of just screw up. Um, it usually happens when you think you're just doing awesome and you're not listening enough. Um, but, you know, I think I heard. And so when you, when people share those stories of when they're like very vulnerable, I feel like they teach you more than when someone's like, here's how awesome I was. Here's all the money I made. Those stories are kind of just like, yeah, whatever, you're awesome. But when someone, especially someone who you see as like really successful, shares one of those stories, I feel like it leaves an impact. And I feel like it, it enables you to tell yourself, oh, I'm going to screw up too. And sort of prepare for that. Like, I'm going to screw up. It's going to be embarrassing. <laughs> uh, but eventually, it'll be a really funny story. And I think that mentally prepared me for my own sort of uh, sort of screw ups um, in life. And those, I think those those moments really help you ask, like, okay, I messed up, you know, and, and like coming from Penn or these other places, you're not used to that, right? You're, you're sort of this, usually have this mindset of like, I, that's not what I do. I don't mess up. I come and I deliver. And being prepared for those moments, or at least knowing in your mind, no, no, this happens. Successful people have these moments lets you slow down and say, okay, what can I learn from this? And a lot of times that's, you know, apologizing to the people who hold close. And that's another thing I had to learn, which is, um, you know, recognizing who the people in your career um, who are really, who are really dedicated to you and making sure that you kept things right with them because at work, you know, you're going to get frustrated sometimes and, you know, sometimes you're stressed out, but when you can kind of keep an eye on like, look, some of us are, really investing in each other and making sure you acknowledge that and respond in kind. Yeah. I think really helps. Um, yeah. So I think for me, I mean, one of my, I mean, I could tell you all sorts of stories in my own scripts. Nothing is quite as good as a bonfire of sales and marketing material. Um, but I think that helped because for me, I really needed that. I really needed to understand that it was okay to screw up and it was okay to be wrong. And that was just part of the journey of joining the workforce and having a career. No, absolutely beautifully said. I'm someone who definitely, maybe it's the Penn student who struggles with screwing yeah. up, which is ironic because I do screw up a lot. So yeah, it's everyone like, does, yeah. yeah so, so, but nobody's like painted a bonfire yet. So like, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess like if successful people have gotten like that level, I, I think that I've got a little bit more room to grow. But, um, but thank you for sharing that. And over the years, what do you feel like has been like, maybe you could share with us some of your pivotal stories of things that have taught you lessons in a sense, or like at least where do some of these lessons come from? Like, yes, like for me, I, like stories have been so important. That's why I have the show in a sense to hear yeah. these. Things. But when I face that, that kind of moment of like, like reckoning when you, when you make a mistake and for me at the very least, I realized that, oh, it's all on me. Like, yeah. That puts me in a completely different frame of mind. Have you ever been in a situation like that? And how do you kind of like like move forward? Um, you know, that's a good question. I mean, um, I, the first thing I went to, which is, I think is not quite what you're asking is, um, but, but a bit of advice is in those moments where like big career moments, you know, um, maybe, it, maybe it was when you were choosing a college, actually, because most of folks here probably had choices. Uh, beyond pen, you know, there are these moments where you're like, I've got to make a big choice here. And it's, uh, there's no going back. And, um, or at least not easily. And it can be intimidating. Um, I found back to my first comment, you know, I, I, in those moments, I always want to be like, I'm smart enough. 
I, I know something secret no one else does and I can figure out like the real answer, but it's not true. Like in these big moments, half the time, like my decision-making is terrible um, because it, it, you know, in those, when you have lots of iterations with something you can learn, but when there's these big choices or big moments, you're not going to have very many of them. So um, a lot of times I just pick people um, and that's sort of, I follow people, not companies, uh, teams, not products, things like that. And, um, er, early on in my career, you know, I was finishing up the dissertation, had, um, you know, was at that first startup, had joined another startup and was in uh, part time, was interviewing uh, and had the option to join like real respectable companies. Like uh, I think one was DocuSign. This is a long time ago now. And, you know, and another one was NCR, which is not uh, not necessarily a consumer facing company, but quite a big conglomerate. And, you know, very tempting. These were real companies with real jobs, not these not these little startups with, you know, 15 or 20 people. Um, but uh, one of them, uh, the people were jerks. And um, I remember trying so hard in the interview and trying so hard to, like, get an offer because I was like, I want this name. I want to have like, you know, I want people to respect the type of work I'm doing, all that stuff. And um, I was married, at, you know, already married at the time. And my wife would just be like, you kind of don't seem like you like these guys <laughs> and uh the little kind of dinky startup i was at um had this boss i was working for part-time and you know no one no one famous worked there the product exists but nobody knows about it but i picked the people right instead of the, and i ended up going with this startup and um you know i had a fabulous time and it, like i said it was a person who's really invested in me and I feel like you learn and grow the most in those types of situations where you're you're going to spend a lot of your life with these people and you want to make sure that you feel like there's something there besides a paycheck. Uh, even if it's a great paycheck, this started, it wasn't a great paycheck, but sometimes there's a great paycheck and uh, you don't want that to cloud. You don't want that to cloud your decision making. Um, and I think it also, if you, a lot of times when I'm trying to you know, think about making these decisions. I think you mentioned like when it's all on you, you know, I try to like think forward. I try to imagine myself like, okay, fast forward 12 months, 24 months, 10 years. And imagine looking back, you know, and what do I, what will I want to happen? What will I want to have told people I did? And there's something about that mindset that helps, helps de-emphasize, um, the glory, the money and things like that helps you not that not that it's wrong to seek those things out, but it helps put them in their perspective and helps you like think, what do I want to tell people was important to me, you know, and that sort of opens you up to be like, it's OK if I make a mistake as long as I'm making it for the right reasons. Um, anyway, this is a long and long and winding answer. Um, and but that's I think for me, trusting in people who are invested in you and picking people you want to work with, you want to spend time with, you feel like you can work together. And then sort of imagine like, not just what do I want to accomplish? Cause when I was in school, it was always like, I picture the end of the semester, picture the end of the year. And I think, what will I have accomplished? What little medals and honors and glory, which was fine. Right. But as I got older, it was more like, what's the story I'm telling about myself. Right. When I get through to the end of this, whatever it is, what will I want to tell people was true about myself? And, uh, um, you know, you're not going to make the right choice all the time. But if you're thinking that way, I think you you're you're making the best choices you can. And if you make a mistake, you're making it for the right reasons.
So not sure that was quite a clear answer what you're asking there, but that's kind of what came to my mind. You you answered it perfectly. I know at the beginning you're like, I don't know if this answers it, but you lied. You answered it really well. <laughs> like, thank you for like like the disclaimer that was totally not necessary. <laughs> but really, really good answer. And that part about picking people that like you mentioned, are invested in you in a sense or, or care yeah, about yeah. you to an extent to, to see where your career goes, to see how you grow. Uh, it may just be that I am a horrible person, but um, sometimes we take those people for granted in a sense. Yeah. We don't yeah. really identify those people. How do you go about knowing who is really kind of like in your corner and how do you really like, like, like build that relationship with them? That is a great question. Um, you know, there's that old saying, uh, I think it might be from even Maya Angelou or someone that like, I believe who, when people tell you who they are, show you who they are the first time, believe them, um, which is a great saying, but I feel like I'm kind of dense when people tell me that and I need it. Like I need it repeatedly, you know? Um, I think um, the people for me, it's back to the screw ups. There's a theme here. You can tell I've screwed up a lot. Um, I think it's the people who, when you feel like you've made a mistake, um, or you feel down about things you've done, they're the people that are there for you. They're the people, because the, a sometimes funny thing happens where, you know, when you're down, you feel like you've made a mistake. You'll have, you always have friends or associates who are there to be like, yeah, you did. And let me tell you why you should have listened to me and why you're an idiot. We all have those friends and, you know, but they're not good friends in that moment. And you'll be surprised. There's, there's going to be, you'll always be able to find somebody who, when you're kind of feeling that way, is going to respond with, no, it's okay. Like we all make mistakes and they'll respond with insight about you that you hadn't really considered. And those, those moments, those are the people that have ended up being the closest for me. And, and it is true. They often get overlooked. Sometimes the people that are the best mentors don't have that edge that a lot of times corporate cultures want and that is unfortunate um and that's a balance you know everyone has to everyone has to have in their lives but i think so to get there to get that moment you have to actually have some vulnerability and that was really really hard for me um uh, still is to be able to admit i think i screwed up i think someone's mad at me or just say hey i don't know what's going on here you know because i actually happened uh, yesterday i uh at work, I reached out to a, a senior vice president who I don't work with well enough to know very well. You know, we know each other, but we don't know how, he, you know, the, the other ones of us, the other side works. And so, you know, emailed um, asking him for some some support or something and emailed back. And honestly, I, had no, I didn't understand the email. It was, you know, which just sounds silly, but, you know, it happens. And I was like, I think he said, no. You know, I was like, I was getting ready to either feel sad or mad and reached out to a friend of mine. And I was like, I'll be honest, I have no idea what this email is saying. And he walked me through it and turned out, you know, it was, it was fine. It was okay. I was just reading it the wrong way. So you do have to be vulnerable. And that can be something that's very hard for uh, students that have gotten to places like Penn and, and to other places, people that go into something like management consulting, where for the first couple of years, maybe it's a lot, you know, law firms might be similar. There's some of those jobs where it's very hard and it's very scary to be vulnerable. Um, you feel a lot of intense competition. Um, but eventually, you know, you'll you'll find those moments to like share, hey, I'm struggling with this, you can help with that. And the people that, again, who 
encourage you, but then have insights about you that you didn't really think about. Uh, those are the people to keep around. Um, you might go in different directions. You might have really different jobs. One of you might end up reporting to the other one someday. Um, but that's okay. Because if you have that foundation of you look out for each other and you're really invested in the other one, you'll be good friends, but you'll also make you a better person at work of someone who really values investing in your colleagues and your team. And that just makes you better at work. So it is the right thing to do. It's a good thing to do, but it really genuinely makes you a, a better employee and a better worker. Yeah. Absolutely. Like amazingly said, I think it was Aristotle who said something like, like find friends who bring out the best in you and teach yeah. you yourself. So like perfect. Definitely like some really good advice. And as you said, like that whole area of vulnerability is something that personally, like I feel a lot of us struggle with and something yeah. that every day when I make a mistake, I'm just like, okay, don't like, 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 like I have to remind myself. Like nobody like, saw, right? Nobody saw, nobody saw. <laughs> and I'm just yeah. like, okay, I need to tell someone and I have to like, put, I have to psych myself up to be vulnerable at many times. And uh, when I started working with the team, I realized that my like what I do will be followed by the people who I work with so if I don't be vulnerable my team's not going to be vulnerable if I don't tell the truth they're not going to tell the truth and like like having to number one reflect on my own work and like 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 be like a good person for my own deliverables is one thing but having to shape a culture is something that is a little bit different today you're like in this really high position you work with so many people how do you shape that culture for them in a sense? How, how do you bring these things that you've learned and like make sure that others have kind of like that same environment, that same like vulnerability and all of that? Uh, it's a, a great question and great insights on your own. You're, you're far ahead of where I was. Um, at 19, I was still, you know, debating on hard days whether to skip class and just go read at the bookstore when it still had books, which I think now it's just sweatshirts. But at a time, there was a time when the Venn bookstore had mostly books, which is, Kind of crazy to think about. Um, you know, there's, um, it is it is hard to guide the culture, and I, I'm still still learning. And um, I think that w sometimes it's easy when we get frustrated or or we are turned off by something. It's easy to kind of rant and rave, and then calm down maybe over the weekend, and then just be like whatever and go back to work and. The founder of Visa is this really interesting guy named D. Hawk. Um, um, I think still still uh, getting getting quite advanced in years at this point, but still around. And um, he had this interesting saying that we still share internally in the company at times, where he said, "You know, when you're an employee, uh, or oh, someone asked him how to be a good manager, and he said, I thought of all the things that made me upset or frustrated when I was an employee, and tried to never do those." <laughs> And when I, you know, and tried to repeat um, all the things that made me happy. Um, and it's kind of, it sounds really basic, um, but there is this sense of like, once you reach a position to be like, now it's my turn, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's probably human nature and it probably happens to all of us. Um, but there typically, I think we internalize too much of that frustration we feel and we say, oh, it's, it's. It's the price of climbing the ladder. I need to be tougher. I need to have a thicker skin. And we bottle it up and we say, that's just the way it is. There is some truth to that. That is, you know, it is, you know, most of us are going to be working in for-profit businesses that are not, you know, warm and cuddly. 
Um, but you know, most people have those frustrations and I think you find if you're, if you're honest about them, um, people will open up, but more than that, I, I think people have a surprising amount of patience, uh, dealing and working through tough things, as long as you're willing to acknowledge that what they're doing is tough. I think what I've seen is that when, when there's a leader or someone that's just like, this is just the way it is. You guys are going to have to suck it up and move through, you know, move through it or work through it or manage it, whatever. People, people respond, people work hard, but, you know, they don't love it. Um, and instead, if you say, look, you know, we have certain constraints. Um, I know I'd love to change these things for now. We can't or we can only change one thing at a time. Let's work together on this. People really respond. I think people understand life's complicated and that nothing's perfect. Um, but that acknowledgement that you're not crazy, <laughs> the acknowledgement that it's okay to be frustrated by things goes a long way. And that back to following people instead of companies. Um, one of the, I remember one of the first bosses I had who would just say, no, you're not crazy. You should be mad. And I remember feeling like, thank you. Thank you. And it made it so much easier to deal with because instead of like carrying it around and it's like, oh, you know, these stupid people, you were like, no, someone gets me. And then the more you talk, the more you realize most people kind of agree that some policies are dumb and that some things are hard. So I'm not, you know, I'm just one of many, um, you know, Visa is a big company. There's a lot of us, a lot of vice presidents, a lot of senior vice presidents. Um, but I do think that um, there is um, a movement toward speaking plainly. Um, uh, at Visa and I'm sure at other companies, I think that's a generational change. It's probably taken several generations, but I think it's a good one. It's not just about showing up, getting a paycheck, you know, life's complicated. Um, and we kind of, you kind of need to all be in it together, working through the problems or you're just going to get frustrated. All right. Very, very good advice. And I really, I, I really appreciate this conversation. I'm going to be honest. I think that I've spent a lot of time asking my personal questions and like, like getting answers from my own <laughs> life. So like, audience, if you guys have questions, I'm so sorry for ignoring you. Like you can ask them, but like, if not, I'm just going to like, like, like air out all my problems and get all of my <laughs> You're lost guys. But no, very, very well, like said, and especially in this climate right now, this whole pandemic of this whole time where everyone is, both very connected and extremely disconnected yeah. at the same time. How do you see like yourself in, in a role of bringing people together in a sense and, and being able to apply all of this stuff that, that we know or we've been very, we've kind of like built up in a physical setting for many, many years. It's yeah. things that we learned through experience. And then suddenly we're all thrown into kind of like a, a different world or like a parallel sure. universe that we're slowly transitioning out of. How is it like, like managing these last few months in a way? Uh, another great question. Um, you know, some people are sort of uh, the natural connectors in an office place. Um, you know, there's various of these uh, personality uh, tests or quizzes, uh, strengths finders, all that stuff. And there's usually a category for the person that's like the, you know, the, the heart, you know, the person that invests a ton of time and energy and um, I, um, I am sometimes struggle with those types of connections. Uh, um, uh, but there's always someone who seems to know everything that's going on with other people, like in their lives. And um, that person just needs to be empowered. It, that makes a huge difference. Now, it's usually in a team. It's not like one person for a whole company. Um, and it can be surprising who it is. Sometimes it's, you know, 
some gruff old manager like we have in our local office, a sales leader, um, you know, he's uh, been doing it for 25, 30 years. He's a former like college football player. Uh, he's like six and a half feet tall, huge guy. And he's like the life of the office, you know, and I think it was hard for him with, you know, without being face to face, but like, he's the one that keeps the text threads going. They talk about football games, you know, they get, they, they, he's the one that gets lunches together on the side, but you know, he's senior. And so he's very empowered to do that. But a lot of times the person that connects the rest of the team isn't. And so my role has been like making sure those people feel empowered. So in our team, there's an, an, an executive assistant to a couple of SVPs who always knows somehow always knows when someone's about to have a kid or get married, or maybe there's a, a big health thing coming up, a surgery or something. She always knows. And it's amazing. And so my job, I, in my view, my job is to make sure she has the over, she has the protection, the, the air cover um, to, to really lean into that skill. There's another person on my team who um, always knows local volunteer stuff. Um, and I don't know if it's from, you know, just being part of the community or if she actively seeks it out, but she always knows. And so my job there is to make sure she has the time and energy to organize it. Cause when you get a team together to go volunteer and do stuff like that, even if 90% of the time you're sitting in your own bedroom or office, but if you once every once in a while can go do something new and different, um, it's really, really hard if it's a corporate policy, it's really hard. It feels fake. And usually, usually the, the senior most person in organization is usually not the heart of, of the organization. When I was at a previous job, uh, we were part, I was part of a marketing team. I was in product marketing and, uh, the, the company was going through some hard times and had a couple of rounds of layoffs. And they, they laid off some folks in marketing who were on the creative side. And uh, it was just devastating. And I remember going and talking to the head of finance and, and asking, like, why did you guys get rid of these folks? And they were like, you know, these guys have outside employment. They're totally safe. They're, they're really high-end creative assets that our company just can't sustain anymore. And they were totally flummoxed at the response. And I tried to explain it. I was like, those guys you got rid of, they were the heart. They were the ones that were deeply invested in other people always made the office feel like something more than a job. And so I think if you're the leader of a team or an office or whatever, and you're not that hard, which is fine. Like I said, I'm, I, um, I like to think I have my own skills, but I'm not the person that just knows all that's going on in people's lives. And so my job is to empower that person and make sure they feel free to, you know, invest their work time into that. Cause, cause that's, that's something that benefits everybody. No, I think that's absolutely amazing. And uh, I'm, I'm actually really digging this advice because I've always been the kind of person who, who, who I'm not I'm like, I wouldn't say I'm not a people person, but I'm not like, as you said, like the heart of the team at times. Yeah. And I feel like many times, like, like the advice I get is always like, try harder and like, like, like work <laughs> with a lot, like, 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 which is, which is important to take an effort and all just that yeah. some people do that naturally. And I think it goes back to your earlier point where you, you mentioned about collaboration versus competition. So it's not yeah. kind of like compete to be like, like, like the central hub of information, but to know who your resources are in a sense and work with them in a way, which, which is very good advice and definitely something that comes from experience because I would not have figured it out unless you, and without this conversation. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm serious. Well, Thank I figured you. out the hard way, um, but still, still learning. And, and you, you guys, you're probably better than you think at it. It's, um, but you know, we all have to, we only have so much time in the day. 
And, you know, sometimes just recognizing that someone else is really good at that part of the office culture and, you know, just empowering them. Very, very nicely said. And again, today, working with all of these people, with all those experiences that you have, what do you think, like, what do you look for when you work with people? Like, on the flip side, in a sense. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I you know, I think there's the... Um, you know, as you go into a career and you start hiring regularly and you start, you know, you start having these experiences where you're interviewing people over and over again, you, you, I think, have these assumptions about what will really matter to you. And, um, um, and then you, over time, realize that some of those aren't, you know, accurate at all. Um, I think that for me, something that I didn't realize was as important in California, it, because it, so densely populated, so many different people. When I moved to uh, Utah for a different job, sparsely populated, not as diverse of a population, you realize just how important it is to have people that are different from you and challenge you. Um, and that's, it's not something, I mean, you, you sort of pay it lip service, I think, coming into the world because you're like, yeah, yeah, of course, we want diverse people. You don't really know what that means. Yeah. yeah, you know, especially my background, not being part of a minority, you know, it's easy for me to say yes, yes, and not really understand. Um, but I think moving away from California, where you have such a diverse uh, population to a place where you don't, you really start to see it and diversity of all kinds. And you, you find yourself in these meetings where you're like, I think we're all the same person. And, you know, you're all making the same jokes and you're all making the same mistakes. And that's that's problematic. And so I think we paid a lot of lip service in corporate America about diversity, uh, but you don't really recognize how critical it is until suddenly you find yourself without it. And then you realize you're just missing whole swaths of human experience. Um, the other thing I thought, you know, because I was like, I worked hard. I was a good student. I went to good schools. I thought that would matter to me. And it turns out it doesn't. I think for some jobs, you know, a, a specific type of training, obviously. Um, but I, you know, again, that's not something that I tend to um, um, focus on as much. Um, it does matter to a lot of hiring managers. And, um, you know, if you see someone who's performed well in school, always a great indication. Uh, but in, you know, in Silicon Valley, there is this sometimes a bit of an elitism uh, we only hire from these 10 schools and um, in I don't know I think that's short-sighted uh, the final thing is I think back to is kind of repeating myself is the thing is a team are you a team player or not if if someone who's just amazing but it's all about them I don't know just can't do it um, that's that's probably the only that and sort of a you know, being a jerk. Those would probably be the only two things that would cross somebody off because part of it's just like, uh, do I want to live with this guy, like my work life with this person? But some of it is um, you all got to be part of a team. That's I think that's the number one thing. If you're willing to come and support the team, great. I, I can work with pretty much anything else. But if you don't have that attitude, that's a hard one. That's a hard one to to want to sign up to work with and mentor someone and think, okay, I'm going to work with this guy, this person for years to help teach them how to be a team member. That's a hard one to uh, accept. Okay. I like that answer. And I think you, you hit so many key points. If you, if our audience is not taking notes, like you can rewind this, tape, like <laughs> put it down, put it on a post-it note, like don't forget in a sense, I'll rewatch it promise. But like, 
Hey, thank you so much for, for like all of this insights. I feel like you, you've you been someone that a lot of our audience can relate to and, and, and just you. from your own like truthfulness in your sharing. So like, thank you so much for like this interview. And I've got one final question. I know I'm so sad. It's like the final question. Like, <laughs> like, I'm sorry, audience. But like, if you like, like simply because you have been someone which I personally can relate to it through this, throughout this interview, if you could like time travel back and meet yourself like just starting out oh, i'm serious like like yeah. just starting out if you could send like a like a message in a bottle to yourself when you were just beginning and were in our position of these lost college students in a sense what would you tell yourself um work less relax more would probably be probably be one of them um um uh yeah, you know everything's gonna be okay uh now um i think one thing I would say is um, pick what you want to do if you assumed you would be successful. If you if you told yourself there's no chance I'm going to fail, absolutely no chance, then what would you do? And then I would say pursue that, um, probably because you're young and you've got time. Um, but there's something there. If there if if you say to yourself if if I knew I wouldn't fail, I would do X. That's usually a pretty good indication of something you're really passionate about and something that you're willing to put a lot of time into. Um, the other thing I would say would be, you know, be a better friend. I, um, I've never had a problem working hard. I've had a problem uh, breaking away from work to invest in more relationships long-term and you know, I wish I wish I had. I mean, it's probably something that um, people as they get to middle age say. Um, but, you know, you you start you jump a couple of jobs, you work for a decade or more and you start to realize, I wish I'd kept up some of those relationships and you learn surprising things from the people. But it keeps you grounded. Having friends who've known you at different stages um, in your career seeing you do different things really helps you keep perspective on life. I think I would have told myself that like, you know, take, take some chunk of all that time and energy you're putting into class and, and take some of that and just put it into your friends and make sure that you stay in touch with them as you get older. I like that. I, I like sometimes when, when, when I do these interviews, I worry if like the advice is kind of like, like, you know, like, like your, your typical advice, but you seem to speak really from the heart and it's, it's <laughs> no, I'm serious. It, it's different from what like, like people just say when they're just saying things in a way. So, so thank you for, for the sharing oh. and thank you for this interview. And I just hope that you've had as much fun as me and the audience. This is great. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. And thank you very much. So thank you. Yep. And I guess this is the end of our interview. So sad. Like if you have not been watching the whole thing, don't worry, you can rewatch it. Or if you enjoyed today's interview, rewatch it as well. Give us a subscribe, give us a like. Thank you guys for um, being on, like viewing the show with us today and joining us for this amazing conversation. So to all of our audience, um, we're signing out for now. If you like today's show, we'll be back again next Thursday with Changing Reality at 10 p.m. ET and whatever time that is, wherever you are in the world. So thank you and till then, bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.